Hello and welcome to Tess Podagogy. This is the podcast which brings you everything that you need to know about teaching and learning, produced by the editors and writers at Tess. We interview leading academics, start debates about pedagogy, and take deep dives into some of the big issues facing teachers today. This season will bring you a wealth of new guests who will all shine a light on their research and how it translates into the classroom. We will also dig into our archive to bring you the best episodes from past seasons. These have all been chosen because they continue to have relevance for teachers today. I'm Kate Parker, a features writer at TES, and this week we're returning to an episode from 2018 in which TES editor, John Severs, sat down with Professor Jesse Ricketts. Ricketts is the head of the Language and Reading Acquisition Research Lab at the Royal Holloway University. Now, literacy is an area which is coming under a lot of scrutiny at the moment. In March, the government's school's white paper revealed new targets around English. By 2030, the government wants 90% of primary school children to achieve the expected standard in Key Stage 2 reading and writing, and it also wants the national GCSE grade in English language to increase from 4.5 in 2019 to 5 by 2030. In this podcast, Rickett starts by discussing the focus areas for the Lara Lab, the relationship between oral and written language, and how literacy knowledge is taught in primary and secondary schools. So at the Language and Reading Acquisition Lab, the Lara Lab, uh, we're interested in all aspects of oral language and all aspects of reading and also other aspects of literacy like writing, also of course very important. At the moment, we are particularly focused on the relationship between oral vocabulary and reading Mm -hmm. and also looking at language and literacy in secondary school and in older adolescents as well. So I guess those are the two main streams of research. Um, So um, thinking about the relationship between oral vocabulary and reading then, uh, so we're interested in the role that oral vocabulary plays in reading development generally. you can make a fairly straightforward case for why oral vocabulary might be important for reading comprehension. In order to fully understand something you're reading, you might need to understand all of the words in that text. Um, I've been a bit more interested in looking at the role that oral vocabulary might play in learning to read words and how that might combine with the kind of knowledge that early in early development children learn about phonics um, and how letters map to sounds. Is it... Um... When you talk, talk about oral vocabulary, do we, are, we, are we talking about access to the level of reading books? So a child might be uh, ahead, for example, on mm. what they can de- decode, but mm-hmm. perhaps their vocabulary won't let them uh, access the understanding of that word. Or even, you know, in the recent test talks to interview, did us even pronounce that word properly? Yeah. So that's a really important kind of set of distinctions actually mm. there. Uh, so when I talk about oral vocabulary, I'm talking about the understanding and production of spoken words. However, of course, once children start to learn to map um, letters onto sounds and start to learn to read, their vocabulary knowledge includes orthographic information as well, print-based information. So you end up with lexical representations or word-based representations that include what a word sounds like, what it means, and also what it looks like. Um, so actually, the distinction becomes much more muddied once you learn to read. But yes, I tend to use that word um, to refer to, that's why I say oral vocabulary or spoken vocabulary, um, how we, what we know about and how we can produce uh, word meanings. And so there's a big words. focus at the moment um, in primary schools on upping vocab, basically mm-hmm. upping knowledge of words because of the uh, access point of the, the SATs in year six yeah. is, is very high. Yeah. 
are we talking about a general uh distinction between levels of vocab that's marked on sort of disadvantaged levels mm. or is there also a type of knowledge um by that i mean are there things that all children are sort of lack knowledge of and we, we need to change the curriculum to build that knowledge so how much of the difference is disadvantaged and how much of the issues are around you know just not the right knowledge being taught yeah so um you're right that with the new SATs at the end of year six, teachers are increasingly, I hear, um, worried about the kinds of vocabulary that their children do and don't know and not knowing particular words, how detrimental that might be to performance. Mm. Actually, what's really interesting in talking to secondary teachers is that you see a kind of parallel concern in late secondary too. Okay. So as they start to move towards the new GCSEs, which are very new, um, teachers are now particularly concerned about the vocab demands in, in those new GCSEs as well. So you see these parallel kind of challenges in primary, upper primary and upper secondary. Uh, I think there are lots of different kinds of vocabulary knowledge that are really important. I think at the beginning of primary school, the main concern tends to be kind of everyday vocabulary that you use in everyday language and everyday communication. And you talked about disadvantage. And I think there is a concern that some children who are exposed to perhaps slightly less rich in whatever way, linguistic environment, maybe fewer books, maybe people talking to them a bit less, perhaps not having been exposed to as much English because their parents primarily speak a different language. Um, I guess the concern very early in primary is about making sure that children have that kind of everyday vocabulary to describe the things around them. Mm. However, as you move up the school system, academic language and academic vocabulary becomes much more important. And there, I guess, an important distinction to make is between uh, more subject-specific vocabulary, so things that you might need to know in order to fully understand a topic uh, that you're learning about, and more kind of general uh, cross-curricular type words like analyze and evaluate. I mean, if, if a child is given a uh, an exam question, for example, that asks them to analyse or evaluate, they need to understand that word in yeah. order to be, even be able to start to use the knowledge that they have. That's um, interesting. You're talking about everyday language. And I guess the, the, there is a movement uh, by some to formalise the early years to be more subject and knowledge centred, mm -hmm. when actually you might get a better uh, attempt at getting these children to understand these everyday language through just interactions, through, mm. through play perhaps they're mm. missing. I mean... Is there any evidence around that at the moment or is it is it a bit of a free-for-all? Um, I think, I'm just trying to think, I guess I've been focusing much more recently on what's happening in secondary school and thinking about what's important and upper primary, to be mm. honest, and what's important for uh, learning about more complex topics and performing well in exams. It is a really interesting question that you pose, though, about um, early education and how formalised that should or shouldn't be. Um, and how to try and encourage those that kind of language. And I guess uh, one answer to that might be to think about how children naturalistically in kind of ideal, I guess, in inverted commas, ideal situations, learn that language. And what we would say then is that it's about experiences and it's about everyday kind of interactions and lots of repetition and lots of repetition in different con contexts. So I guess that those things are going to be very important. Mm -hmm. um, I think later on, the kind of vocabulary that we're trying to teach, we won't necessarily be able to give children and pupils direct experience of those words. So we might have to come up with other other strategies and solutions, I think. And when you're uh, talking about oral language, and, and I guess the, the, the power of that oral language is reciprocal in the, sen in the sense that mm. it, it 
gives you access. You know, if, if the child is reading, uh, is decoding, mm-hmm. then they make a better guess at pronunciation. Mm-hmm. But then you've also talked about how that in turn can can make a better reader as such. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's a really um, kind of dynamic relationship between oral vocabulary and reading as you grow up. Mm. It's really interesting. So clearly, before you learn to read, spoken language is all you have. But once you learn to read, uh, not only is that spoken language really important in providing a foundation for learning to read and for reading, uh, but you also get some feedback from reading. And we see that in lots of different ways. Uh, One of the things that's particularly interesting that you see in younger children who have just learned to read and also in illiterate adults who learn to read, is that it changes the way that they process spoken language forever. Uh-huh. Um, and it really, it can kind of help you to process spoken language, but it can also kind of hinder you in a funny way. Um, so if the spe- spelling pattern, we know that English has all these strange spellings, and if the spelling pattern interferes with your kind of sound-based processing of the word, um, and there's some conflict there, then that can slow you down, actually, in processing oh, wow. language. So it's kind of, it's a very interesting dynamic relationship. In terms of vocabulary, uh, once you can read, it kind of opens up a whole new world of how you might access vocabulary. Mm. As soon as you can read connected texts that are long enough and inevitably will contain words that you've never heard or seen before, uh, it just gives you this rich uh, situation in which to learn new vocabulary independently, which is really important. Um, however, it is still really important that we kind of supplement that with explicit teaching where, when words are going to be really crucial, um, because that independent learning through spoken language and through written language is very difficult. Um, and I guess to some extent can end up being less successful than learning through spoken language and learning through a kind of more direct um, approach with someone actually actively telling you what that word means. Mm. So it sounds like, at least in the early stages of, of schooling, teachers should uh, have not only a reading uh, scheme, mm. but a oracy screen, yeah. a scheme where, you know, we're actively getting oral vocabulary levels up at the same time as we're doing reading. I mean, yeah. how common is that in your experience? Do Is this something teachers will do sort of naturally, almost instinctively, or is it something that needs to be done more explicitly? Well, I mean, it's certainly there in the curriculum Mm. that you should be complementing this uh, kind of perhaps very early on a phonics-based program with um, teaching oral language as well. Um, And I agree with you entirely that doing those two things in in parallel is going to be really, really important so Mm. that you can encourage that interplay and encourage um, those connections. Uh, In terms of observing teachers in the classroom, I think both things go go on. But of course, teachers are kind of under pressure to deliver certain things. And I think sometimes that can uh, have an impact on the decisions they make about what they're going to teach and when and how. Mm. Um, and certainly in some classrooms, I would say that would be really nice to give teachers the freedom to include a little bit more of that oral language exposure. Mm. Um, though it's enormously variable, I would say that every teacher does it slightly differently. So how can oracy be built into literacy lessons? How can we expose children to oral vocabulary? Should teachers encourage children to talk to each other? Should they increase the amount of teacher talk in a lesson? Does whole class reading need to be a regular feature? Here, Rickett shares her advice. I think a number of things are really important, like you say. I mean, uh, us being um, teachers and, you know, uh, when I'm speaking to my students as well, I I teach undergraduates who are typically aged between 18 and 22. I often have to teach them new words that they Mm. haven't heard before. Or I'm often 
planning to use words that I know some of them won't understand. And it's important there to just make sure that you're conscious of the words they might not know. You maybe repeat them a few times. You give slightly different definitions of what they might mean um, and so on. And those are the kinds of things that I see teachers doing regularly and that I use in my own teaching practice too. It is also really important, though, to encourage discussion and that the language is coming from them as well, encouraging students to use that language um, and to use it in various different ways and to use it with each other uh, too. Um, so those are all the things that I encourage in my teaching with kind of older adolescents and young adults. And I think those things are really relevant in the classroom too. I think alongside that, what's really important is to support those language and literacy skills that are going to allow children to learn through the process of their own independent reading as well. I think that's going to be important too, upskilling them as well as giving them some information, upskilling them to find new information too. When, um, when children are discovering their own words through their reading, let's say, at, you know, above seven perhaps, mm -hmm. when they start really accessing texts that might just be beyond their reach, mm -hmm. Uh, how do we ensure that when they're reading those words that they understand the spoken, the, how they're spoken? Because obviously yeah. children might be going around accessing this information. I've been guilty of this getting yeah. to a university level and pronouncing a word and everyone sort of looks at you and says, it's not, it's not pronounced like yeah. that. <laughs> you yeah. know? There's, there's, a, there's a perhaps cultural gap there mm. in terms of maybe if you're not from a household that regularly uses those words, you never really find out because it's all... It's, all, it's only ever spoken in your head. I guess that, that's really interesting, actually. The one I particularly remember is Hermione. Um, I'd had a friend at primary school called Hermione, but my husband, when we both read the Harry Potter books years and years ago, uh, had never met anyone called Hermione. So yeah. for him, it was Hermione for ages. You yeah, know? Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think that happens all the time. I guess there what's important is to think, so is it, uh, to some extent, is it important... Uh, I guess knowing the meaning of the word and how that relates to the visual form of the word is going to be more important if that's how you're always going to encounter that word. Mm. But but what becomes tricky then is then if you encounter it in spoken language and you don't recognize it. Mm. But then I guess there is also this thing of slightly adapting what you're hearing and what you're seeing and what you know to come at um to come at the right word. So I think if you've got enough information going on, then you can probably get to where you need to be. But I do think that's a real problem. But what we can't do, of course, is teach every every child every word that they're ever going to see yeah. or hear or need to know. So I guess you need to um, encourage children to know perhaps that words that they see are not always going to sound how they think they're going to sound mm. and to ad kind of develop strategies to cope with that. I think that's probably the key because we just can't teach every word that people need to know yeah and i guess yeah. it's about being sensitive to that i always remember a year yeah. 10 uh we, we were reading one of the shakespeare plays and someone said tyranny tyranny instead of mm. tyranny mm. and the teacher dealt with it really well you know yes. he said oh no you know that, that's actually pronounced tyranny you probably haven't did a definition but it would be just as easy perhaps for for people to laugh or people to make that child feel you know bad about the, yeah. the mispronunciation I mean, one of the things I've been looking at um, quite closely in my research is the extent to which, so we've talked about how you might learn new voc vocabulary through the process of reading. But I, as I said earlier, I'm really interested in this idea that once you learn to read, it completely changes the way that you process and learn language. Mm. And I've been looking at that in a particular way and teaching children and also um, working with teachers so that they can teach children 
new words um, and teaching some of those words with the visual form and some of those words without and looking at whether learning is better if they have access to the visual form. And what we find um, fairly consistently across these studies is that children do indeed learn the spoken forms, so what words sound like, and also what they mean better when they have access to what they look like as well. Um, so they seem to develop a kind of stronger lexical representation, a stronger word-based representation in that situation. And I guess that kind of strategy is one way of getting around that. So if you are teaching what a word looks like alongside what it sounds like, then any kind of uh, kind of discrepancies between the two forms can be explained or can be highlighted. Um, so that's, I guess that's one way of getting around that issue. But it is a real issue. Of course, it's not such an issue in other languages. So okay. remember, we're learning to read and learning to speak in a language that is quite opaque. We have lots of letters that map onto more than one sound. Um, and we have lots of sounds that map onto more than one kind of letter pattern. So our kids do have a particularly challenging task in learning to read English because it's not transparent like Finnish or Spanish mm. um, is. And that's what creates some of these complexities. I mean, it's worth noting, though, I've got a PhD student, Nikki Dawson, in the lab at the moment, who's doing some really interesting work looking at morphology. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, some of the, the kind of strangeness about the way that sounds map onto spellings is driven by kind of morphology and, and carrying meaning that way. So you do get something from that, from some of that idiosyncrasy in English. It's not kind of just there for nothing. And mm. it can help you. Um, but, you know, it does make learning to read quite tricky. Um, and I guess then these knowledge organisers that are becoming more and more prominent at the start of the scheme of work, you have, you know, your key facts, but you also have glossary, mm -hmm. a, a glossary of the key mm. terms you're going to encounter. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's some debate about whether, how useful that is at primary with people saying, oh, it's a dry way of learning. The, the language, but from yeah. what you're saying, that glossary could actually be really helpful for, yeah. for children. I think so. Yeah. So, so learning some really key words that, without which, you know, you're not really going to be able to understand anything. Mm. I was looking recently. I've been doing some work in secondary, and I guess the message in secondary is that we don't necessarily know what to recommend in terms of teaching reading in secondary because yeah. there's just so little research on on reading in secondary. Um, but I was thinking about words that, that children might need to know and, and might not need to know for the secondary curriculum and the glossary there. And I think what you've got to be mindful of, though, is that there is this set of words that you might want to teach them um, in order to kind of be able to access the topic. But you need to be mindful of the fact that the descriptions you're using underneath those words are also containing words that they're going to understand. So I, see, I think yeah. you do have to remember that there are some children who do arrive at secondary school, and my research has shown this, uh, with the kind of vocabulary knowledge that you would expect from an average six-year-old or seven-year-old. And you have to be mindful when you're trying to kind of adapt that secondary curriculum to to suit everybody um, in the classroom where you've got this range potentially of kind of um, quite low vocabulary levels right up to adult vocabulary levels and thinking about what are the kind of barriers to knowing those words, even if you're teaching them explicitly. And that may be understanding some of those, um, those underpinning words that you're using to describe the new words. So it does become a very complex thing and yeah. trying to think about in your class what, what the kind of um, knowledge gaps might be in your students, I think is, is very tricky. Uh, and when you look at, we were looking recently at, at some um, some extracts from science textbooks and things. And there was one on, on satellite. And it struck me that you are very likely in a year seven, year eight or year nine class to have a 
have a child at least, or perhaps many children who don't know what a satellite is. Mm. At no point in that, that textbook was it defined. It wasn't defined. It was just assumed that you would know what a satellite is. And I think um, that wouldn't be true of all textbooks and all texts. But I think, it, yeah, it is really important just to be mindful of what those crucial words are and at least make sure that they're known. And the explanations um, of those words are also simple enough yeah. just to cover your bases, yeah. I guess. Yeah. As Rickett says, some children arrive at secondary school below the expected standard in literacy. Often, this is blamed on primary schools. But is that really where the fault lies? Definitely not, says Ricketts. This blame game between primary and secondary schools is unhelpful, she says. I guess my main view on that would be that for any teacher in any classroom, they are almost certainly having, unless you've got a selected class in some way or a selected set in mm. some way, if you've got an unselected class in front of you, you are likely to have an almost impossible range of knowledge and skills in your class and an almost impossible um, variation. So, you know, what you have to do is try and um, do the best with what you've got. And I think it's it's a really tall order to try and to expect every child to leave primary school, um, irrespective of where they've come to, you know, however they've got to primary school and what's happened to them in that process, um, with all of the knowledge and skills that they need to enter secondary. I just think that's too much of a tall order. I do, I, I mean, my experience of teachers is that, that, is that they're incredibly hardworking and they care a lot about what they do. Um, and they're doing the very best that they can with the materials and the knowledge and the time and resources that they have. Um, I think it is unfortunate that sometimes there is this, uh, people are forced into a situation where they need to kind of, they feel they need to do this blame game. Yeah. Um, I mean, I haven't seen teachers particularly doing that um, myself. But I, I do think this is a, a very difficult position where you're almost pitching primary and secondary schools against each other mm. because of this value-added kind of process, really. Yeah. Um, you know, so primary schools are under enormous amount of pressure. So recently we got some primary and secondary school uh, teachers, sorry, together in the same room to talk about literacy. Um, and this is when the levels were just about to go out. So it's a couple of years ago, a few years ago. Um, and also thinking about what the impact of those levels going out was going to be. And uh, the main thing we ended up talking about is this real difficulty where primary schools are expected to show value added and then secondary schools are also expected to show value added. And that actually just puts them in conflict with each other mm. in the end. So um, you, You've spoken before as well about children developing reading issues or comprehension mm. issues uh, later as well. Could mm. it be that, you know, they've reached a, nat a plateau as such at year mm. seven and actually they haven't got, you know, they were doing fine at primary school, but actually accessing that secondary curriculum is actually where the problem was first being first identified. Um, so that's really interesting that you say that. And certainly we do see children who learn to read to word, learn to read words quite well, so accurately and efficiently. And that's very much the focus of the curriculum, the literacy curriculum early on in primary. As they move through the system, though, and have that kind of accurate and efficient or sufficient word reading abilities to access meaning in connected text, uh, sometimes you see that reading difficulties emerge and they tend to focus around um, uh, language comprehension and reading comprehension. Sometimes we refer to those children as being poor comprehenders or children with specific reading difficulties. So yes, you can see um, reading difficulties that would impact on the curriculum and access to the curriculum and exam performance that emerge a little bit later. 
What I would also say about this jump from primary to secondary is that the demands of the secondary setting are really quite different from mm. the demands of the primary setting. Uh, the curriculum changes, of course, um, but also children are just expected to learn much more independently. They're also expected to be more independent. So they're doing all sorts of things, finding their own way to all these different classrooms throughout the day, managing a, a timetable in a very different way. Um, it's, I guess in some ways it can feel like a much less supported environment. Um, and then on top of that, there, there are these added expectations in terms of what they will learn independently and how much homework they will do. Um, and that becomes increasingly a part, of, um, a part of how they get their knowledge as they go up the secondary curriculum. So I think it's perfectly possible that there are children who were doing fine in primary school who on the move into secondary school with all of these additional challenges, mm. they're any kind of perhaps quite subtle difficulties that they were having in primary school become much more pronounced. Um, and from talking to secondary teachers, quite, I mean, the reason why I got interested in doing research and um, starting to conduct research, looking at literacy and language in secondary school is that I found that I was increasingly visiting secondary schools and talking to teachers and um, special educational needs coordinators and so on, who were faced with this group of children, sometimes quite large group of children who couldn't, didn't really have functional reading abilities. Mm. And they didn't really know what to do about it because in the kind of initial teacher education or even in continuing professional development for secondary teachers, uh, they, they don't get much information on the science of reading, I guess, mm. what we know about how children learn to read and what you might do in order to teach a child to read or to improve their reading skills. It's not really seen as, as their job, is mm. it? And I think what we, we need to have a kind of shift in perception really and realise um, that it would be a really good thing if in every secondary school we had at least one teacher who really was, was skilled um, and had a really good knowledge base in that topic so that we could start to make sure that we are supporting those children at the bottom end of the distribution in secondary because we know that they're there. I mean, that's why I got interested in that line of research in the first place, really, trying to find out more about what the science of reading in adolescence looks like because at mm. the moment we don't really know what's going on beyond primary. And often they're, they're given primary resources, I understand yeah. like and where well, they're put in nurture groups and, the, and taught by primary teachers and yeah. i mean there's a problem there isn't there because because they might learn to read differently and also yeah. because there's a a self you know there's, there's a i guess there's an issue there about how they see themselves as learners because yeah. they see themselves you know oh i did this four years ago or i did this five years ago why am i still on it I, i'm a rubbish reader as such that that is a problem I guess. yeah there is a real need so not only is there a need to understand much more about reading in secondary and make sure that um, uh, teachers have access to information about what's going on in adolescent readers and poor adolescent readers. There's also a need for materials in order to teach those kids. Absolutely. So you do see in secondary schools, because there are not alternative resources, teachers using things like toe by toe that are used very regularly in primary schools. Mm. Um, and that, yeah, the children may well have had before five years ago when they were struggling to learn to read. And, um, or, or they may well be conscious of the fact that this was designed for a much younger child, the language used in it, the words used in these texts. And I, I do think there could be much more work around trying to create age-appropriate resources for use in secondary, and that would make a big difference. I mean, you're right. And I think when you're uh, one of the things that I, I encourage my students in teaching them about developmental psychology and also try and very much incorporate in my own work is is the idea that as you develop um, in a, as a human being or as a reader in this case or a language user, 
uh, there's lots of interactions that are going on in, in your experience, and that kind of turns you into who you end up being. Uh, and I do think that there can be this very complex and important interplay between having a difficulty in one aspect of your learning um, or for some children in many aspects of your learning, and this very much becoming a part of who you feel that you are and having a big impact on your self-esteem and your attitude to learning and your approach to learning. And a really interesting conversation I've been having you know, quite regularly with secondary schools at the moment, secondary school teachers, is that once the kind of poor readers that they are most concerned about um, their primary concern is to some extent their functional reading abilities and wanting to support that, but also is wanting to kind of mitigate any issues in relation to motivation um, and attitude to learning. Because secondary teachers really do seem to feel that attitude to learning is the most important thing for success. Mm. And if we can somehow harness that, then, uh, then we would be able to get kids into a better place. When students get to secondary school then, does it become easier to hide literacy problems because teachers don't necessarily have the analytic tool or the expectations? Could you be a fluent reader but not fully comprehend what you're reading and coast along without anyone really noticing? Some would say that the way to counter this is to have high expectations, but actually Rickett says that this could hinder a student in the previous example. She goes on to discuss how teachers in secondary can assess children to ensure that no child can hide their literacy struggles. What we know from the, all of the work that we've done with primary age children is that reading comprehension difficulties can be really quite hidden. Mm. Uh, so, because it, it, it's very difficult in a class of 30 to know the extent to which every child in your class, especially those quiet ones, and we do know that the the children with developmental language disorder um, in, in classrooms, of which there's about two in every class, sometimes they can be the quiet children. Um, and it is very difficult to detect reading comprehension difficulties in the primary classroom, even, even in the primary kind of setting where there is this real focus on literacy uh, and where you will have children reading aloud. So you will be able to detect decoding and word reading problems, um, but reading comprehension problems are much more hidden. I think, if anything, that's probably likely to be, in, you know, kind of compounded by the time we get to secondary school, mm. where it may even be very difficult to detect word reading difficulties. I mean, by that point, you can imagine that children may well have developed all sorts of strategies to cover up for the fact that, mm. you know, that they're not reading and they're not understanding what they're reading. So I think it does become very difficult. Yeah. And so with that, you spoke of that uh, sort of literacy expert at secondary that mm. can that can sort of spot these issues and, and mm. perhaps develop resources to counter it. Mm. Would part of that be some sort of diagnostic? I mean, many teachers now yeah. run, many teachers now run sort of starter lesson quizzes. Okay. How much, yeah. how much the class know what, what they, what they learned last week. But I guess at that point, you're again going to have to make a decision about whether a child is having a comprehension issue or whether they're at, whether it's an understanding issue of a different mm. type or whether the concepts is beyond them. Is it? I mean, mm. it's incredibly complex, it seems. It is very difficult. Uh, what, what I do see um, across quite a lot of the secondary schools that I work with is increasingly they are deciding to um, assess literacy in everybody at the beginning of secondary school. Mm. Uh, so I do see that increasing, increasingly in schools. Typically what they would do is a kind of computerised reading comprehension test um, and they can sit everybody at the computer 
um, and do it all at once. And so it's relatively efficient. They can be quite expensive, those tests. And what I would say is that uh, those tests, if you're asking children to complete those reading reading comprehension or reading tests individually, they are going to be quite demanding on word reading abilities. So it's still going to be quite difficult to get at the comprehension. Mm. I think in order to do a really um, reliable reading comprehension assessment with a child, you really want to be doing it one-on-one and probing their comprehension of connected text. However, that kind of uh, group testing can be really, really useful for starting to screen and starting to hone in on the children who might need one-to-one assessments Mm. because clearly we can't be assessing every child that enters secondary school one-to-one. Well, I mean, unless the government decides to pay (laughs) for that, but I think that would be uh, completely out of the question in terms of time and resources. And also you might argue that there's all sorts of other things that need to be happening at secondary school and should um, should we be allocating all of our time and resources to one thing? Is it possible then perhaps for secondary teachers to have a checklist in mind where they say, okay, we've run our, you know, quick test at the beginning of the lesson. These children are struggling with with the concepts. Should we try X first, then Y, then Z in terms of, you know, where would comprehension come on that, you know, progressive sort of diagnostic session with with those children? I mean, is it, would you look at comprehension first? Have they actually understood the words or would it be, second thing you looked at or the third thing you looked at? Hmm. I guess just thinking about what's already happening in in secondary classrooms and thinking about how you could capitalise on what's already being done to Mm. try and get at how much people are understanding. And I think the important thing would be to look at written work and Mm. to see whether through children's written work or, or adolescents' written work, it seems that they're understanding the words they're using and that they're using the right words. They're using the most appropriate words in a particular situation. Um, so I, I guess I'm not sure that we need to kind of add something. There's something that we can add on to a current lesson that would allow a teacher to, to know whether every pupil in their class is understanding. Mm. But I think by paying close attention to their written work and perhaps getting them to produce a small amount of written work at the beginning of the lesson that they can then do some peer to peer evaluations of or something like that might, might get at the issue. But it would be de- very difficult to identify every sing- you know, the, the understanding level of every single child at the beginning. But I, I think that's where kind of the kind of assessment that you do through writing and, and so on is really important, seeing that development, seeing where they are. And I'm sure that's what teachers are already doing. It's interesting um, that you see, it's that modelling, I guess, it's the modelling of the language and, mm-hmm. and seeing if it's being reused in, mm-hmm. in the right situations, yeah. right context. Yeah. And then... I guess from that, it, it, it's it's seeing if they're bringing in, you know, language from their own reading, mm-hmm. uh, wider reading. And in terms of wider reading, would you say that anything that was challenging or, you know, relatively challenging, you don't want it too challenging, mm-hmm. I guess, because mm-hmm. it'll put you off, but is anything that's just beyond perhaps where they are at the moment going to be good for oral vocabulary and, and general vocabulary learning? Yeah, I think you want, ideally, you want to have texts where, most of the words are known and then there are just some words that are unknown. So when we're designing, so I've done quite a lot of work where and we're continuing to work on thinking about, okay, so if we want children to be good at learning words independently through the process of reading, what can we do to try and maximise that? So we've done quite a lot of work about uh, thinking about what kinds of texts, firstly, should we give them? And what we typically do in the text that we design is we make sure that most of the words will be known 
um, and just these new words that we're expecting them to learn um, are, are unknown, of course. Um, so trying to have, yeah, get that kind of right level between stuff that they know and stuff that's new that is just stretching them to learn those additional words. The other things that we've talked about, though, for example, is if, there are, if, if we know that pupils are going to encounter some new words uh, while they're doing their readings for the homework, for example, we might, uh, perhaps we might, and I do this in, in my own practice, perhaps we might at the end of the session before we set that reading, just go through a few of those words, just to kind of give them a bit of a head start, give it a little bit of that direct teaching in five minutes so that then they can really benefit from that reading when they come to it. It's not the first time they've seen that word or had any experience with that word. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Test Podagogy. Please join us again next week.